You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Abracha. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni in Yerushalayim, Irakadish. I'm Avram Kivalevich. Dr. Juni, uh, it seems like most people believe that uh, here in the United States that the election uh, is passed, uh, despite the fact that things need to be certified and there are legal challenges that are being mounted by President Trump. It seems that we definitely will have uh, a different president and that president will be Joe Biden. Again, you never know. I've, I have a Trump supporter friend of mine who says there might still be a Nes Hanukkah and uh, things might be overturned. On the other hand, Trump's challenge got me thinking about something I think that's important for our society, which is when you heard Republicans and others and Trump saying that there are votes that should not have been counted, that there were people who shouldn't have voted, people who uh, who voted uh, improperly. Uh, it got me thinking about the idea of not voter suppression, but the idea that that Trump and others have been talking about, which is there should be limits about who can cast a ballot. And specifically where I was thinking about it was the idea of people who are are deemed mentally incompetent or not able to vote because they don't really understand what it means. People who uh, are, let's, we've, we've talked on this program about people who have uh, uh, development disabled and what is, is what the, the type of feeling that we have to have, the humanity that we have to express towards them, and, and the sense of their emotion. But in reality, there might be some uh, value to the argument that there is a, a competence level that is demanded for deciding, especially when, and again, I am not weighing in about who I think should have won the election. But when you do have elections that are decided by such a major, uh, major elections that are decided by such a razor thin margin, the fact that there might have been um, people that were encouraged who really didn't understand what was happening and uh, in terms of the big issue, um, who knew that they could, as you <laughs> be bussed in and brought to the polling uh, booth or sent in ballots that because of people who had control over them, there is that possibility that those votes were pushed in a way that perhaps shouldn't have been counted. Um, again, there's voter fraud all over the place, I'm sure, in small little pockets. But the big issue is the understanding of, of people who have – uh, a, that we would say are mentally incompetent on many other levels. They might even have guardians taking care of them and they have, they have been, they're not able to function in what we would call most aspects of society. And yet there's, there was an idea of not depriving them from this uh, right to vote. And I think it sort of got, it got me thinking about the ideas that we have from our world, at least from my world of how we treat uh, people who have, uh, either severe developmentally uh, dis- developmental disabilities or people who are suffering from a psychotic condition in terms of how they f- are functioning and ho- 
in from a halachic uh, perspective in society. And we have talked here on this program as well. I know I'm, I'm leading up to this. Is that your opinion? Is of course is that those type of determinations need to be uh, the, the guided by persons like yourself who understand this area. Only people like yourself can give definitive determinations about what is competency and what the person really understands and where, how he is perceiving the world. And we both know that leaving the election behind, there's always going to be some question when you have people of, uh, that are questionable in terms of their mental capacity. Are the, did the marriage count? Can they give the divorce? Should they be held responsible uh, for their actions? Um, how, when we want to include them, are, is there a limit to the inclusion? So going from the, the whole of the election, sort of to the Kodesh of our world, I would want you to provide a bridge for us, a perspective, starting from there, and, and even within what, what I just mentioned. How would you say we should proceed in this? Now, um, how would you say that we should uh, begin to, 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 to wrap our heads around giving people their dignity, and at the same time being realistic about where they can contribute and what should count and what shouldn't count? I know it's a, a introduction where I went on for a long time, but I think I got to the point at the end. Okay, glad to be here again. And yes, I'm I'm excited about, about what you just raised um, because I know um, definitely the psychiatric um, reality of what goes on. I also know about the um, changes in culture which define psychiatric reality, which is an important thing to consider since many of the Allahic sources come from generations where they had different understandings or different criteria or different mores. And yes, in terms of building a bridge from, so to speak, mental health to Allahah, I can just build half the bridge. Like when they bring, I know when they build tunnels, I do it from two directions and they meet. So I can build half the bridge and I'm excited about hearing your perspectives on the other because I have... Um, some reservations and a lot of questions. Let me um, just introduce a couple of points that I find are relevant here. And that's when you just look historically at the entire rationale of the electoral college in US in the US system, um, there is a, a notion which is at the base of all of this, which is that we don't want to make the everyday person responsible for sophisticated decisions. Essentially, the Electoral College is a buffer which says, well, you people have some sense of what's going on, but you may not be sophisticated enough to understand it all. Or even if you understand it all, we don't trust your motivations. They could be very uh, idiosyncratic. They could be very uh, much based on some belief systems which we, the the fathers or the people in charge, of the government don't want to um, have a direct influence. So we want a buffer. So that's where it all um, 
that implies a certain, um, shall we say, paternalistic or exclusionary attitude towards people in general. And that's where I like to ground the entire notion of excluding or not excluding certain people from voting. Um, to me, even with that buffer, I find it absurd that some of the people whom I know well professionally as patients and as clients and as consumers have the ability to put their two cents in. And of course, I know it's a slippery slope, but I know they had in, in um, early America different uh, weights for people, like whites were considered to have more of a weight than blacks in terms of three-fifths, etc. So I just find it um, disconcerting that you have people who are very sophisticated in politics and are quite intelligent and that their vote is nullified by someone who votes because, oh, I like to vote on the right side always of the ballot rather than the left side. Or I vote from people who um, have early uh, names in the alphabet. Rather, and There really are some whimsical um, decisions that are made by people. I'm not talking about fraud. I'm just talking about, um, shall we say, capricious, to be kind, capricious decisions. And um, they enter into the same system. I also want to say that what we're dealing with here, the, the concept of having the right to vote, is a fairly new concept that doesn't have its roots in ancient philosophy or the ancient understanding of what man is. And in fact, some of us would say that calling it a right simply talks about what certain laws come up with and that it's not like a human right or a... Um, a personal right or a God-given right, which is definitely what the founding fathers thought it was. Um, I'm sure that there are some halachic sources for this about people having the right to do something as citizens. And let me hear from you about that before I go on. Yeah, well, well, you know, Sam, you uh, constantly surprise me because, you know, I was hoping that we were going to get, uh, you were going to open up your psychological box and here you opened up your, um, your historical, your historian box and your knowledge of, uh, of of the political systems that have developed, especially the United States. Uh, so is, you're correct. The United States is an interesting barrier. Just to comment on what you said before, before we get to the halachas, uh, the, the electors technically are legally able to switch. That is true. Uh, the electors who are the college do have the right to sort of deny what the popular vote is and say, it's basically us. It's not you guys. And that was the buffer you were referring to, but it's, it's, it's very rare that the two should differ. So normally there, there's a lot of public pressure on these electors to bow to the will of the people and the will of the people is the popular vote, but you're right. Technically, the electoral college is a way of saying the people really don't know, but we see what they want, and we are these elevated humans, and we are the electors. We're going to decide. But you're correct that um, that this 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 come from a patrician uh, aspect that the founders had, and uh, it was clearly a listen. When we talk about the the country being villed in its inception, there was that, that was that, there was that perception that, that, that the country wasn't ready yet. 
And uh, I don't know. Again, we can have a, a discussion at a different time whether the Electoral College should be uh, dismantled uh, or not. It, it, I think that it would it would change your perspective and maybe mine about the efficacy of voting, whether voting is going to make a difference or not. But that's just a comment on that, just so people should understand what it was you were saying. Now, you asked about the halachas um, uh, of competency. And this is an area that if you start doing research, you'll find it is immense because especially uh, in, in the areas of, of Evan Ezer, the areas of marriage and divorce, uh, which unfortunately occurs and issues of whether the person was able to actually serve the papers and has the divorce really occurred, uh, really has spawned a, an immense literature deciding for today who is a mental competent person and who isn't. Um, the Talmud uh, based on a, a brysa, and I know that it's a very interesting brysa, the brysa that is quoted, the Tosefta, says that who is the, the term of course is shota, which is not a, uh, uh, it's, it's not really found in the Torah anywhere. The Torah uses the word shigaon, like the, the common expression, a meshugana, a meshuga. Uh, but the idea of shota, which is developed by the, which is mentioned in the Mishnah and the Talmud, the, 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 there are four simanim, four indicators of what a shota is. Um, and what's, one of them is that someone who goes out all alone at night. Um, and of course, again, without any comment about the difference between then and now, someone who walks around by himself uh, at night. Uh, the second one, was someone who spends the night, not just taking a walk, but he spends the evening in a cemetery, in a base Um The third simon was makare es ksuto, or ksuso, someone who rips his ksus. Now, the ksus is generally the overgarment that you wear, um, uh, and uh, someone who's ripping his clothes, or ripping that overgarment. Um and the first, fourth one is someone who uh, destroys or uh, basically loses seemingly willfully anything you give him. Whatever you give him, he doesn't have it uh, later. So those are the four. That those four are the are the simonim, the signs of what we call being a shota. Now, I know that they were they, This was articulated. In the second century Palestine, so to speak, it was articulated way back when, 2,000 years ago or so. And those were what was sort of what we've been working with. Um, now, uh, Dr. Juni, when you hear that, realizing the gap that has occurred between us and them, what does that say to you, those four simonim of, of Shota? What is... How would you, how would you take that and, and, and translate it into modern terms? Yeah, so I have several strong reactions here, and one of them comes from the philosophy of science. So these days, using modern scientific paradigms or modern paradigms of scientific thinking, when we have indices, okay, you say there are four indices of incompetence. 
usually indices are meant to be symptomatic of some kind of underlying condition. That's how our thinking works. Um, as far as I can tell, and again, I don't know the philosophy of science of Talmudists, but I know the philosophy of science of the um, purveyors of knowledge in Talmudic times from other cultures. And essentially, they did not have a symptom and underlying condition mentality or paradigm when they spoke. So simonim, the way I understand it in terms of, shall we say, the psychiatry or mental health aspects, which were really confused with physical health aspects and also with metaphysical realities. So the notion there was these are criteria that render you incompetent. And again, there's something called presentism, which we're all stuck with, which is trying to um, stick reasonings of people in other times and other culture into our own and using our own constructs, which is faulty. So what you really have to do is do the converse, which is transplant yourself into that society's shoes, so to speak, to think of how they're thinking. And best I can do when I see a kind of statement like that from that era of 2000 years ago is essentially that um, these people are doing things which is so antithetical to what we consider the essence of a normal human being that they're just out of the picture. And just to be specific, if you're walking out yourself at night, somebody is going to hurt you. And if you don't care about being hurt, you don't know the first thing about human um, conventions and about human motivations. So there's no way we can assume that you know what it means to own something or to buy something or to sell something or divorce someone. If you go to the cemetery at night, everybody knows that there are ghosts all over that'll harm you. And if you don't care about that, there is something wrong with your general assessment and understanding. And again, you therefore can't own anything. You can't be a witness. If you rip your clothing, everybody goes in clothing. And there wasn't a notion you go in clothing because you're dark or because you're embarrassed. Any normal person goes in clothing. So ipso facto, you're not a normal person. So I would say these were almost buckshots, indicators of what we want to consider a normal person. And of course, anybody who does this is just out of the picture. So I'm just saying, this, you call them simonim. I'm not so sure they're simonim because if you ask them, what is a normal person or what does meshuga mean? You will not get a unitary definition. And I, I just want to say that um, there is an overlap in halachic thinking, best as I can tell, between competence and agency which means if you don't have the competence in intelligence, then we don't give you agency. And sometimes it gets really stretched apart. And I'm thinking in particular, and I know I'm stepping in a mind box, which you'll get um, very reactive to from a logical perspective, but the notion of disenfranchising women, which basically says, well, they don't think exactly the way men do, and therefore we're not going to give them agency. Although that's an outlier, so don't, don't jump on me right away for that. Um, what I do want to get to at some point today is to veer out from just intellectual limitations to psychiatric conditions and deal with them based at least on the facts we've talked about right now. But I, I, again, I know you have things to say about my comparison between competence and agency. And I also think you may well take exception to my notion 
that the simanim, so to speak, are not absolute, but are basically indices of some kind of underlying conceptualization, which I am not privy to because it's not my expertise. So please react there yeah. if you want. Okay, well, you are correct that one of the things that any person who lives in the world of Talmud has to deal with is um, is mediating what seems to be um, not just cryptic terminology, but also um, an anachronistic terminology about things that are very essential. Like when we're talking about, does the is the marriage a marriage? If we're talking about, um, is the action halakhically effective? Are we going to say that, are we going to allow this woman um, to remarry and her, about her children? So th- these are things that, 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 that reach to the heart of what our society is. And now we're deciding it based on these terms. If we're going to treat this like you are suggesting as um, just the signs of uh, not even a sign, because that would be the wrong thing. These are just vague, uh, not so vague, but specific descriptions of behaviors, but not indicators of something deeper then what we are doing is uh, handcuffing and marginalizing, handcuffing ourselves and marginalizing our sources. So, you know, similar to what goes on in, in, in the legal world where they take the Constitution and um, they try to be originalists in some sense of, of figuring out what they meant, but also realizing that there is an advancement of thought. If we just put ourselves back then, then I, I think we do a disservice to being a, 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 a living halacha. What we are are then caretakers, uh, historians, um, we are curators of the museum of what was Jewish thought. We need to, whether that is true or not, about, now I personally believe that despite what we imagine about the ancient world, the men of brains thought in terms of conceptually. That doesn't mean I would understand what they were saying, but there was a, a commonality of conceptualization that I think Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Yochan Rosh had that was shared by Rabbi Chaim Brisker and others today. I don't know if they would have understood each other when they began to talk, but I do believe that we, we are, we are endangering things if we look at things only as, well, it's just these. Yeah. So that, that, that's my reaction to that. My reaction is, is that unless Sam, unless we take these four statements and find the inner idea behind them, then I think we are in trouble. <laughs> so, because otherwise, it's the Wild West. Who is the Shota? Who's not? Uh, who is the person that's competent? Who isn't? We, we we sort of it's incumbent on us, in other words, to to find the concept. Whether that's true from their way of thinking or not, I don't really care that much, because it it, it has to be that way. Because if not, we are going to have uh, our, our halachic system is going to be dismissed. But again, I, I might I might have surprised you there by my response. 
but but I think that's what we have to say. Otherwise, we we the Bali Halacha are just like the the, the shamans who are uh, dancing over a buff, you know, wearing buffalo whistles. Go ahead. Right. So, no, I appreciate what you're saying, although it, it is, you are schlepping this into an area where you're getting into um, the kinds of reasoning that I often hear from uh, theologians who are not Orthodox Jewish, to say the least. Um, but I, I just want to reframe what I said before to make it sound less uh, uh, pejorative of previous generations. And I, I just, let me just give you a, another uh, anchor. Um, Felons are not allowed to vote in many um, legal systems. And I'm trying, in my mind, to say that I have a hard time relating to that from a psychiatric point of view or from a mental health point of view, unless you assume that people who are are criminals are criminally insane. So that's a way to bridge it. But what I want to say is that people who say felons are not allowed to vote, at least uh, uh, jurists who say that, uh, theoretical jurists, those who make the laws, those who are the scholars of law, what they're really saying is that these are the kinds of people that do things that just don't belong here. And again, not that it's indicative of anything. They just take that the way I assume somebody sleeps in the cemetery is being disqualified. This is not the kind of people we want voting. We don't want people who rip their clothing and have no regard for their possessions. We don't want them voting. And not because it's indicative of much. So I would have that same kind of, shall we say, paradigmatic dismissal from my perspective towards that kind of attitude as I have towards the attitudes from what I consider to be an alien um, uh, um, perspective from a, from a, from a different time. Um, I also wanted to say that I have a lot of my biases in this area come from my experience with forensics because I'm often called in to render judgments about, um, shall we say, legal aspects which are really grounded without the judicial system understanding that they're grounded in psychiatric concepts and there's kind of a a bridge I'm expected to to cross which I have no possibility of doing just like I can't cross from my expertise to Allah. I don't know how to do it but let's say in forensics the issues that come up are issues of liability. Okay, Should this person be punished? And I say wow I can tell you exactly what's going on in this guy's mind or in this guy's soul, so to speak. But when you're talking about punishment, that is not a psychological concept. So how do you expect me to bridge the gap? And the same way, when we talk about who is a show to who is not a show to, if you're talking about effecting metaphysical states like marriage or divorce or being halakhically qualified to be a witness, which is not just a matter of being trusted, because there are disqualifications not based on trust, those are essentially halachic, or I call them metaphysical concepts, where I feel that anything I say is whistling Dixie, because there's no relationship. And I'm sure you feel differently. You probably feel that there is a direct implication because halacha couches itself in terms of constructs that are alive today and meaningful today, rather than becoming a fat and useless. So I would be very happy for you to try to build that part of the tunnel or bridge towards my side, so I get some kind of intuitive appreciation of what's going on here, rather than just, I'm in my corner, you're in your corner, and then you do some magic because you're a rabbi. Well, 
again, you know, I, I, I'm so happy that you're giving me this mantle of representation of the rabbinic world. I'm not giving it to you. It ain't mine. Okay. Well, the truth is I have uh, served uh, in the Bet-Din, in the Bezdin, uh, on, on the Jewish courts, and we have dealt with questions that, that are quite uh, not only relevant, but heart-wrenching in terms of determining and deciding um, what how we should deal with the reality in front of us, where we would have a person who um, there was a question that we had uh, whether we could overturn or amend a um, a, a, a custody decision that the New York State or it was actually the New Jersey, I believe, had decided about a certain parent um, and the uh, the wife brought a case in the best in that the the man's actions, his um, recklessness and other behavior, she wanted the best in to rule that we should recommend uh, to the New Jersey courts that he should be uh, his ability to have any sort of. Um, the, the 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 request was take away his custody. We want you as the Besden to determine that he should not be in charge of these children. It's endangering them, and um, we were supposed to use our voice for that matter. Now, what we did was we spoke to the rabbi who knew his behavior because we didn't take the behavior just from what she was saying. But then we also consulted a psychiatrist about, or a psychologist, I forgot exactly if it was one or the other, but about this behavior to, to see. Now I'm using this case where we actually sort of, first we wanted the accurate observation. The second thing was we knew what we didn't know. We knew that a description of behaviors needs more, it needs context, and it needs someone who is able to, after hearing this description, be able to put it into perspective of what's behind it. And as I was saying before about these four, what is these? what are these behaviors a simon of? So I think the bridge is already there. I think most but they didn't like we did realize that People act strange all the time. There's there are protests and riots and strange behaviors and screaming and actions, especially that we've seen on display here in the United States over the last couple of months that 50, 60 years ago, had you shown people a, a clip of that, they would say, Has Amer- are people crazy? Are they insane? What's happening is, 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 the, is there a contagion that that is mentally affecting them? So we understand that behaviors themselves cannot be in themselves a deter- the sole determining factor. We need an accurate description of the behaviors. And then what we do is we do corroborate and get a uh, greater than the corroboration. We get the perspective and the ideas from people like you, people that we trust people that we know don't have an agenda, who don't have a, a, a horse in the race, and then tell us what this means. And 
that was the case I was involved in. Throughout halachic decision-making, this bridge is here constantly. Now, um, just like we have in many court cases where you have conflicting doctors, and that's where it gets dicey, where you have one doctor saying one thing, one doctor saying another. But in many cases, especially when it comes to can we, and I know this is a topic that you are very familiar with, I know you've lectured on it, can we retroactively um, cancel the marriage? Can we say that this uh, factor, that this uh, this syndrome or this illness that developed or this what this what was indicated here was something that had been there in advance? I mean, we talked about this when we talked about Mechaktos, but in that case, and I don't want, there have been a number of famous ones, uh, one of them that I was somewhat involved with, um, the Epstein case, uh, that I was advising some of the people on the other side, uh, that was one of the questions that the Bezdin had to rule. Was, and, 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 and the basis of the ruling was not some sort of tricky uh, Talmudic reading of an ancient text. It was really what does psychology tell us about this situation? Is it something that has always been there? Is it something that was dormant? Is it something that was brought out by external factors? So I, 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 I really believe there's less of a tension than you might think. It doesn't mean that it's not messy. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be uh, people who don't accept it. There's going to, but, but there is, I think, that path. The knowledge, A, and let me just reiterate what I was saying before. A, the sources are supposed to be reflective of a greater, I'm not going to say a philosophical idea, but a theme and a concept. And that's what these sources have to tell us. The four things I mentioned before have to be stripped down to what does that really say about looking at the world and what, what do they mean? And the second thing is, know what we don't know. Realize that as life has got more complex, we need to have specialists indicate to us what is considered a person who really perceives and understands the world, and therefore the actions have a real strength, and the actions mean something. So I, I hope I've answered your question uh, about the bridge, because I, I think the bridge is there. All right, so, so let me say, my reaction is a little disappointed because I don't like messy crossovers, especially when you have a bridge on one side and the bridge on the other, both are solid. And then to get over it, you have to walk on the little gangplank, which uh, some people will have judgments about in terms of what it should look like, how it should look like, how solid it is and how it isn't. So I don't feel as grounded as I would like to be in this crossover, what you're essentially telling me is that it's a judgment call and it's up to experts in the field to call it. And I can't say it, it settles me down so well. I want to introduce another point where I feel that it is solid in terms of the forensic work that I've done and see, I mean, maybe you can tell me whether that has any counterpart in Allah because that sits very well with me at least in terms of its uh, being concretely defined, not necessarily um, philosophically, but concretely. Let, let me tell you what I'm talking about. Um, the way I understand um, um, certain qualifications about mental competence in terms of having um, 
agency and in terms of being called a reliable witness, so to speak, which has its parallel on the Allah, but I don't know what happens in Allah. Um, um, in Allah, it's basically the stuff we talked about already. But let's say the, the notion is as follows. If somebody is to be a reliable witness, he or she has to know exactly and understand precisely what the consequences are of perjury. So if somebody thinks that there is no punishment for perjury at all, we will not allow him or her to be a witness. Or if somebody has shown in the past that they disregard the kinds of consequences that would occur from being from, from testifying incorrectly, we dismiss it at all and dismiss it totally. And which is the same notion that's used for why people who are not mentally competent cannot serve as reliable witnesses because not because they don't know what's flying or because they don't understand it, but because they are not going to be concerned with figuring out the consequences because they can't even figure it out. So I was wondering if that has any kind of traction in terms of the halakha field that maybe when they say somebody is a shota and doesn't understand, that basically means they're not scared of doing things that are off the wall. And again, I think I know a parallel, and I don't want to step on your halakhic toes here, but there's a parallel that I understand that people who are gamblers and gamble all day and have no job are considered incompetent because they don't give a hoot about what society will say. And if they end up being reprimanded or ostracized for being a false witness, it doesn't bother them. See, that's something concrete. And I was hoping for that kind of stuff to come Uh, across uh, in your side of the bridge. Okay, so so I'm sorry... I'm sorry I disappointed you before, and I I, I realized I didn't I, I didn't respond to that. And I'll tell you why I didn't respond to it. I, I didn't. It's not because my brain was elsewhere. It's because in, in, in till we return to a period that uh, we are actually uh, bringing people to the bet din and actually punishing them uh, with the death sentence or, or something akin to that testimony is not such an important aspect. And I'll explain why. Most of the cases, and again, uh, the the exception is divorce and marriage cases where testimony is crucial. And we do think about, was this a, as we say in Hebrew, a kosher aid? Do we have aidus? Were they really married? Was Were, were there people there? Um, is the get... Is the divorce valid? Was there kosher witnesses? Now that we discovered things like you said before about a gambling habit by one of the witnesses, does that invalidate them? So in the I in, in terms of marriage and divorce, testimony still plays an important role. But what you are but the primal role of testimony was witnesses coming to the court and describing what they observed that would therefore bring down upon the perpetrator a possible death sentence or lashes or something like that. So there, our understanding was that, and I'm going to talk about women too, which you threw out before. There, the understanding was that members, certain members of society have a, 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 a skewed perception of what was really going on. And because 
we are dealing with life and death. The judges have no right to assume that the event actually occurred the way it was described, although normally we give witnesses that power. So the point is, is that we know that a person who wasn't ever able to speak and had to learn about the world in a different way, his every event that's in his memory has a certain sort of lopsided aspect that tells us that perhaps it was not, in fact, not perhaps, we have a strong sense that it wasn't what the person described. And therefore, we cannot take liberties and and, and, and extinguish the life or beat someone, which could also uh, cause the person to be considered ill and sick from the beating. So that's one of the reasons why we knock people off of edus, uh from testimony. In the, in the cases I've been involved in, which are cases we call Choshen Mishpat of money cases, so let me tell you something. Um, we have the right, especially if the two parties agree, to accept almost any sort of witnesses because ultimately, here's the point, the witnesses aren't really doing anything except giving us information that we now are going to process. The, it's really within the court's purview to say that testimony didn't, it wasn't ADIS, but it tells me probably what occurred. So I can, we can have this person who is, uh, uh, let's say, who is called mentally incompetent, but describe what they saw. We could take that into consideration. They can speak at the court, but ultimately their testimony is not the reason why we awarded the money to the other person. Their testimony was part of a big picture. We don't even need witnesses at all. For example, if the, if the Dayanim know what's really going on, or there is no testimony, but the Dayan knows that the other guy is a liar, he has a right to award money. So that's what I'm saying. Testimony, in, it doesn't, doesn't, it's not, we can therefore make the person feel great that they testified. They can come in, a woman can come and testify, and, and, and that could happen in Yerushalayim, in the Bezdin, and anywhere. So, so, so I think that you're right. You, you sometimes have people holding this flag. How can you take away testimony from people? Um, it, it really isn't what you think it is. We, in Choshen Mishpat, we allow it. And, and I hope that that sort of like puts into perspective the idea of what of what of what testimony is. Okay. I have to say, you just undisappointed me by this contextualization because I understand what you're saying. I saw it more as almost a, a chemical reaction or something that has a a, a, um, a a power of its own, and really you contextualize it in terms of judgment. And I can understand in terms of judgment. Um, you can have any system, including Galachas system, come up with its own rules of evidence in order to inform a judge or an expert. It's almost, if I can be banal, it's almost like the electoral college. They feed in the information, but essentially it's the people who are more competent, more knowledgeable, and have their um, hand much more closer to the actual halachic system 
that can um, come up with that. So that's fine. I wanted to ask you something just from my own, which I don't want to like um, hijack this, this session, but I'm just curious, is there anything parallel to the halachic, I'm sorry, to the um, American constitutional quote unquote inherent right to vote? Does that exist anywhere in, in, in Jewish sources? Because in constitutional terms, at least the founding fathers speak of it actually as a God-given right and a, a part of being human. Does that have any, is that an invention of, of Locke and Hamilton? Or is that something that actually exists somewhere in, in the Halakhic scripture or in Talmudic scripture? I'm curious about yeah. it. Well, he just treated religiously. Again, it's interesting that you put those, that phrase together, Dr. J, Talmudic scripture, you know, because, you know, scripture, of course, is a Christian term for the, the words of the Bible, the words of the, what we call the Torah. And um, we know that there is a, there, there is an ambivalence in general about how societies need to be ruled, right? This is one of the, the classic questions. Is a melech, is having a king a positive thing? Do we need to be governed and ruled? Other than what the, the, the Torah writes about judges uh, and the importance of having civil uh, law and that, that there, it's not the Wild West where you, right, and, and that, that there's tort laws and, and, and people can't just go around and do stuff. Do, how do we determine who is this power over us? Um, this idea of having a king and, and how does he become a king, right? And, and, and the scripture actually shows us how messy it is. What's the messiest, you know, we talk about you know, Gore and, um, and Bush. And of course, you know, maybe even now um, Biden, Trump. What about Shola, Melech and David, right? Here you had uh, who's ruling, who's in charge, what makes someone a king, Um we do have an idea of after the battles are over, the people wanted him, but there was no, there was no, there was no voting. <laughs> it's not like they went around and voted for David Abelak, right? There was no elections runoff. The idea of people's choice was more a wave of determination that, well, it looks like mo- most people want him. Well, is, is, is that democratic? Is that a vote? No, there was no voting. And, 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 and so the idea of a, a right to vote um, as something that's part of your God-given uh, determ- you know, what God wants. God definitely, as Jonathan Sachs uh, of Blessed Memory uh, constantly stated, uh, Judaism is all about human beings' ability to change the world and how one person is, is, is so important. Uh, and I, I think the founding fathers uh, invested this idea with a with a glorious sense that definitely doesn't find, I think, any um, e- echo. I, I do agree that that we we need to believe that we have the power to change things, and the power of an individual means something. But the idea of one person deciding, the voting only really happens in a Talmudic way in a Besdin. In a Besden, we have an idea that uh, when you decide, for example, in the case I said before, should this man die? Do we think we have enough evidence? Um, do we think that we've heard enough to determine? So there, they will take a decision and decide based on a majority. That concept of achare rabim lahatos has been adapted by the Bali Halacha 
to explain city councils and aldermen's and things like that, uh, which is basically they borrowed the concept from Besden, but it, it doesn't necessarily indicate voting. So that's your answer, I, I think. Okay, I think. good. Okay, so if you don't mind, I want to pump your brain, your halachic brain, um, for one more aspect, which is that I know that within the forensic system, there is one general term of mental incompetence, which covers both intellectual deficit and psychotic processes of people who are highly intelligent and would never lose something you give them and uh, don't rip their clothes. They're just psychiatrically disturbed. And I'm wondering whether the, the criteria of Shota that I'm aware of and those that you enumerated before as in the, you call them indices or semanim. I was uh, um, not quite um, on the page with you on that. But does that concept include just intellectual um, um, limitations or does it include psychotic processes as well? Would it accommodate someone who is paranoid and has ideas of persecution but does not do any of that? In other words, is it limited to... I'm just trying to, to, to get at the bottom of the sophistication of the halachic system from my presentist perspective. Do they accommodate psychiatric disturbances where it's not a question of intellectual limitations? That's what I would like to hear okay. from you. All right. I'm hoping I'm not just satisfying myself, and I'm hoping that the audience also follows my logic here. <laughs> I need to know your answer. Okay, so the, like, I, like I said before, this is a, a, an area that, you know, we're going to have to, we have to close up here, but this is an area which is a gigantic area in halacha. What, what, the way I'll answer you is in the following. When the Talmud described these four types of persons, uh, whether they group together what we would call development disabled persons or people who are suffering from a psychotic condition, you're probably right. From their perspectives, they didn't necessarily um, d- distinguish so starkly. We, of course, know there is there's a major difference. Someone who what we call, let's say, the IQ of a one-year-old or a two-year-old or something like that. And I hate using those terms, but someone who has a, a, what we call the low IQ and low understanding, uh, clearly uh, that is someone who is uh, not only putter from all mitzvos, because mitzvos apply to a certain sense of maturity and understanding, so they don't really have any halachic chiv, uh, to do any of those mitzvahs, but they also, if, for example, one of, and, and this comes up uh, constantly, by the way, in Ohel and, and other programs where one of, one of their, the boys decides to marry one of the girls. Now, one of the things that the Baal HaLocha, uh, whether that's considered a proper marriage or not, is really there's a bigger factor, which is let them live together anyway, because it's probably uh, there's there, there's there's a sense of decency and of being a human being and letting them have that dignity, whether it was a proper marriage or not. So, so my point is someone who is eventually disabled that has a, a very, very low IQ is putter across the board and their actions really uh, can't have that validity. So I'm going to use the lumdish language. They can't be which I know you're very familiar with. They, they can't really affect the people you were talking about, 
the people that you are talking about that are, that are suffering from an extreme psychotic condition, those people uh, might in some way have a din of a, 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 uh, a shot in some way. They might in some way, because of what's going on in their mind, be patur from mitzvos. But their actions mean something. Their, they, their sense of that this is a woman in front of them that they're marrying and they want to be with forever, or this was a woman who they are now divorcing, their, their halosim mean something. And uh, uh, they can affect. So I, I think halacha knows the difference between the two. And halacha does... Uh, does, does argue for that. Ramosha Feinstein, uh, in, in a tshuva that he wrote in 1939, already made this case that th- that there's, a, a, and that I think would, would cover many of the people that you would probably see in your practice and you would say are suffering from severe psychosis, but we would, we would understand that, that the part of them that r- understands the world and recognizes things and, and is able to uh, for example, it wouldn't be a problem of counting them for a minion. There wouldn't be a problem of them being involved in making matzah and things like that, where we want a competent adult. I hope I've answered your, your, your question as far as that goes. I find it uncanny that as you're talking, um, it sounds very much like uh, some of the um, criteria that are published by different states about voting. And while I've seen some uh, voting limitations of people by of intellectual limitations, sometimes a judge has to chime in, but at least that's a reason to not allow certain people the privilege of voting. I've never seen anything about psychiatric conditions. All I've seen is that sometimes people in psychiatric facilities are not allowed to vote because they're assumed to be uh, mentally incompetent, and that's using the terminology of intellectual uh, limitations. But I've never seen, and again, the impression I'm getting from you is that, psych- at least you mentioned with Moshe as a reference, that the psychiatric conditions may be used to inform um, the criteria of Shota. But in terms of the psychiatric condition itself, assuming that somebody does understand the reality, it would not disqualify them from being involved in any kind of um, a ritualistic, uh, what you call effect-making or halos. So I find that very interesting that my hunch that I'm dealing here with systems that are not necessarily different than mine because they're 2,000 years old, but they're just different because they are not mental health systems. They're jurisdiction, they're, they're um, um, divisions of jurisprudence or forensics rather than dealing with defining what mental illness is. And I uh, find this a uh, Comforting in a way. You know, I, I would say that even if one would uh, argue about uh, the how solid the the logic is, I think that otherwise, if we don't accept this, and I know I'm being very much a, a uh, sort of a, pra- a pragmatic thinker here throughout this whole program, you wanted big concepts, and I was talking to you about the pragmatic reality. I think mm-hmm. this pragmatic reality needs to, and maybe we'll sum up with this, this pragmatic reality needs to be accepted because otherwise you're going to have people, I think we mentioned before we started recording, people are going to say that the president himself 
has been mentally imbalanced. And, and, and the actions that he shows and the tweets that he has that issued forth from him are an indicator. I, I, and, 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 and I am not necessarily agreeing with that or disagreeing, but I think what, if, if we are going to allow, uh, uh, you know, what we would call uh, these type of actions and statements to label a person essentially out of bounds, then that labeling could happen anywhere. And, and, and what's going to be the termination? Uh, we need to sort of include all of what we would call, not the Meshugoyim, but include all the weird people who have, the, and I would even say myself in some ways, who have idiosyncratic uh, perceptions, things that are strange, even things that might need medication or you to be involved in. If we don't include them, then we don't have uh, a guideline. It's very cruel to say this because, and I've spoken about my sister before, but if, whereas when we deal with the disabled, not just because they don't have advocacy, but because they're the, the, uh, the, the math, the science, the determination is much stronger. We know what they can't do. We know what they're not able to do. The IQ test tells us that the evidence is right in front of us. There, we're in a safer place, limiting them from being polo halos and being involved in the involvement there it's, it's it's cut and clear whereas if we would try to adapt this in the bigger picture we would have so not only would we have so many exceptions we would not have it would, it would lead to complete civil discord who's going to decide there is a mashug and there is nisht this this is really getting us close to an area that really is a different topic, but Thomas Saz has been a prophet of doom forever about the misuse of psychiatry, that once you start making judgment between different groups who are competent in terms of are they competent enough, you get into um, political dictatorship. So he, he basically turned his back on the entire psychiatry and claimed that we're all just a bunch of um, puppets of some kind of political order, which is, I wouldn't really agree with that, but I hear what you're saying, and again, you are very pragmatic, and I have to get used to that, but I do understand you. I do understand you. So this is... Okay. All right, well, you definitely put me in the in the challenge seat, and I, I felt like a lot different than just being your interlocutor, uh, and I, I would have prepped a lot more had I known that this is where it was going, but look, let us hope that, uh, the, the, as I say, I think the bridges between the two worlds, let us hope that the, the bridges are, whether there's a gangplank in the middle or not, there's at least some traffic going over. And that traffic, we hope, uh, is also shared by those of you out there. So that's it for this week, my friends. Uh, Dr. J, thanks again. We'll hopefully see you next time with uh, a, another episode of Standing in Two Worlds. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 